Well, uh, I remember being a kid, and one of the things I liked, uh, I wasn't a good reader right off the start, so I lived in the pictures a lot, and I liked those pictures where you had to find out what was wrong with something, you know? Don't you love those pictures? Occasionally, they'd pop them into the weekly reader. Anybody? Anybody? Weekly reader? Highlights magazine? Anybody? Yeah, there we go. What is it now? An app, probably, or something or another? Yeah, well, you look for the picture and you look and see what's wrong. There are at least three things wrong with this picture that's up on this screen. See if you can pick them out. Let's start with the caption. Slightly fuzzy on what God actually said, Jonah inadvertently saves the whales. That was probably funnier when saving the whales was more in the news, wasn't it? So, okay, so he's saving the whales. So that's the first thing that's wrong with that. What would be the second thing that you can see? A uh, whale on dry land, that's a good, good start. It's actually a whale at all, because there's no whale in the book of Jonah. Did you know this? There's absolutely no whale anywhere in the book of Jonah. What? We'll get to that in a minute. And then the third thing that struck me, as I was just having a great time with the Lord this week and getting ready, for, it was an amazing time in prayer this week, uh, was that it struck me that the word repent never appears in the book of Jonah. I know, isn't that weird? I mean, how many of you like me? You got the book of Jonah, and you see Jonah walking through the city going, Repent! You know, kind of a pre-John the Baptist kind of a guy, right? Repent! Well, it turns out the word never appears. Actually, a form of the Hebrew of the word appears. There are two Hebrew words for repent. One happens to be the one where we turn to God. We turn away from our sin. We turn to God. And the other is a change of mind, which is better translated now, relent. And so when this word for it is sometimes translated repent in your King James Version, if you have one, um, in the book of Jonah, three times it appears, and all three times it refers to God. That God repented, if you will. I mean, I, would, I, I feel weird even saying that that way. But that God relented of the plan that he had to bring destruction on Nineveh and spared the lives of 120,000 people so that he relented. But the word repent... Does, that wasn't Jonah's message. Jonah's message was not to repent. And this just blew me away. Jonah's message, if you look in your Bible, he said exactly what the Lord told him to say. He said, in 40 days, God is going to destroy the city. That's his message. In 40 days, God's going to destroy the city. The only, only modification of it was it said it took him three days to do it, so then he said, in 39 days... You know, I mean, kind of has to work that way, right? Just to stay true to the message. But for three days, he never told anybody to repent. He never called anybody to repentance. He just said what the Lord told him to say. In 40 days, God is going to destroy this city. So this morning, we're on stop number 29 on the through the Bible thing. I'm going to finish, do this today, Jonah, and then I'm going to take a break from the through the Bible for a little while because God's given me some very cool stuff that I think is going to bless your hearts for a while, and then we'll come back to it, and we'll start picking up with the rest of the Minor Prophets a little bit later on. I'm also going to break from the pattern that I've been following about, like, the context and the main points and that, you know, uh, just because I think this is going to better serve what the Lord really wants to say for us, okay? Say to us. The story of Jonah is pretty well known, don't you think? I mean, if you went out in public and you asked somebody to give you Bible stories, probably David and Goliath might come to their mind, and they'd probably say Jonah and the whale, wouldn't they? But they say Jonah. It's a very well-known story. So there's a city called Nineveh with 120,000 people who have earned the wrath of God. 
And God calls this, this prophet named Jonah, son of Amittai, and he says, go to that great city and, and prophesy to it. And what does Jonah say? No, I don't think so. He books passage on a ship for exactly the opposite direction. Exactly the opposite direction. They're on this ship. They encounter this, this life-threatening storm that every, all the sailors on the ship, they were throwing stuff over the side. They were working. As, and it finally occurred to them that this could be the wrath of God on us. And so they started questioning among themselves, who is it that has incurred the wrath of God here? Jonah finally says, well, it's me. I'm running from God. And uh, I know, probably maybe not the smartest thing, but they, you know, they said, well, what are we supposed to do? And he said, you need to throw me over the side. If you throw me over the side, everything will be good with you. They said, we don't think we want to do that. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like something's going to make God happy if we throw his prophet over the side. And so they kept pulling and pulling, trying to get this thing straightened out, and they couldn't, and finally they throw him over the side. <laughs> good for them. Jonah hits the water. The Bible says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him. Fish and whales are not the same thing. We know this, right? He appointed a great fish who swallowed him up, held him in his belly for three days and three nights to give Jonah some time to think about this. In the context of this dark place then, uh, chapter 2, Jonah kind of gets his wits about him and he says, Okay, God, you win. Uh, have, he literally says, I have seaweed wrapped around my neck. I can't imagine a worse place to be. And then he says the most interesting thing. He says, so I will fulfill the vows that I have made. So as soon as he says that, I will fulfill the vows that I have made. Then the Lord prompts this great fish to regurgitate him up onto dry land. He makes his way to Nineveh, where he spends three days going 40, 39, 38 days from now. God is going to destroy the city. Well, this hits the city, all the citizens of the city, all the way up to the king, who says, all right, everybody put on sackcloth and ashes, which was their sign of mourning for the condition they had found themselves in. They were fasting. And so these 40 days goes by. At the end of the 40 days, nothing happens. Nothing happens. They're not destroyed. Because the Bible says, even the king cried out, perhaps if we do this, God will relent. will change his mind and not do this thing. 120,000 people are saved. Jonah didn't feel great about this at all. It would have been great if it ended there. There's another chapter. Jonah goes up on a hill overlooking the city and he begins to pout. He is angry. What is he angry about? If you read the scripture, he's angry that God didn't do what he told him he would do. He didn't destroy them. How can you be mad about the survival of 120,000 people? And so God says to him, do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? He says, you're, you're you darn right I do have a right to be angry. Because if you read on, he says, I knew you were going to do this. He said, I knew you were to be a God who is slow to anger and full of compassion. I knew you weren't going to wipe him out. And he was made to look the fool. See, this is a big problem for Jonah because he ended up being completely obedient, doing exactly what God said to do. 
Tell them in 40 days the city's going to be wiped out. And then in 40 days it wasn't. And God never paid him the courtesy of showing up and telling him, you know, Jonah was right in the beginning, but now that y'all have changed. So here's what it looked like. Jonah was completely faithful to say the thing that God had said, and then he was made to look the fool. There was no explanation for why it didn't happen. All these people for 40 days, they're wearing these clothes, they're fasting, all this stuff. They have no way to know for sure that God changed his mind. And so Jonah is left in this predicament of anger and resentment. That's the short story. Actually, I probably could have read the whole thing in about the same amount of time. It's not a long read. Jonah. Jonah and his great fish. Let's head right to the elephant in the room. Seriously, was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? First of all, no. Because in chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 17, it says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Man, that just really stretches your head, doesn't it? It just stretches your scientific head, doesn't it? Because you're pretty sure there's probably not a fish that could be big enough to successfully swallow. Unless he was a really little guy. We don't know that. But it's not just the swallowing thing, is it? It's the being inside for three days in an anaerobic environment when you're an oxygen-breathing person. I mean, there's just lots of scientific problems with this, aren't there? Some people just say, you know, I really struggle with this part of the Bible. It can't possibly be true that that happened. And uh, from a scientific standpoint... Of course. I've seen people go to great lengths to study the lists of biology and the annals of ichthyology to see if they can find a fish whose mouth is big enough to swallow a normal-sized person without devouring them in the process. And some of you have been to seminars where they've shown you pictures of great fish whose mouths were big enough. But that doesn't solve the problem at all, does it? He's still inside for three days. Would he go in the tanks or something? It doesn't solve the problem at all. This cannot be explained scientifically. It cannot be explained scientifically. And it's a great problem in our worldview where we try to explain all of this stuff scientifically. It's not going to stand up to the mechanistic bar of reason that we idolize in our society. But if you, if you look at this in verse 17, I mean, if you're going to believe the Bible, the Bible says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. He didn't say he picked one out of the flock, the herd, the school. He didn't say he just picked one out. He, he made one. He made the fish for the purpose. Must have had a tube to the surface. I, it could have been a living room in there. It could have had a recliner and a TV. And he's like watching ESPN for a couple of days. And you, you don't know. It says, the Bible says that the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, if the Lord can provide the fish to successfully swallow him, then the Lord can provide the situation where he's going to survive for three days. But this is a decision of faith. This isn't a decision of science. It's a decision of faith. God provided a great fish. And, 
And, and I got to ask you, is that really your biggest question of the Bible? I mean, if you think about how absurd so much of what we believe seems from a scientific viewpoint, is that really where you want to spend your energy? It's trying to decide if there was actually a fish big enough to do this? Think about the other things we believe. I mean, what about this Red Sea thing? I've never had anybody come to me and say, you know, I don't know, I, don't, I can't do the Red Sea thing. The fish comes up all the time. He parted the Red Sea, a million people walked through. The Egyptians come in behind, he flushes them. And you're thinking about the fish? <laughs> Did you get to this showdown with, on Mount Carmel, you know, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You know, and God comes down and he consumes Elijah's altar with fire from the sky. And it says, licks up the water in the trench. And you got a problem with a fish? Has anybody read any of the New Testament? I mean, you got the Son of God born of a virgin. Hello? That's not scientific. And you got a problem with a fish? I mean, look, he drives out evil spirits. He prays for Peter's mother-in-law. I'm so sure that would have been my first thing, but, you know, he's Jesus. <laughs> that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole down gathered around the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Who believes that? Then you don't have a problem with a fish, do you? 5,000 people came for lunch. Jesus said, you feed them, boys. I said, what do you got? I got five loaves and two fish. fish. He's all about this fish thing, isn't he? I mean, holy mackerel. He feeds them with 12 basketfuls left over. He sends them ahead in a boat on a raging sea. How does he catch up with them? He walks on water. Explain that scientifically. Why would you bother? Why would you bother to try? Because following God is a decision of faith. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Think about the concept of God. And you trip over a fish? The, the concept... That there's a holy, righteous, omnipotent reality invisibly existing and yet somehow inexplicably involved in our lives to the point that he's making a place for us to live eternally. I believe this. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That his blood was sufficient for my sin, which was a lot. I believe that he was laid in the tomb and on the third day he arose. I believe he ascended to the Father. I believe he's at the right hand of God interceding for my sin. I be but listen, stop with the clap and listen. That's why I don't stumble over a fish. <laughs> this is the mystery of God. 
And the reason this is a common question and so many of the miracles are so commonly questioned by us is because we are living with a flawed worldview. Your worldview is something that you don't design. You just get it. You're born into a world at a time, at a concept, in a culture where certain values and dynamics come into your life. And that is a worldview that is imposed upon you. Now, since about the 16th century, the world lived under a theistic, a sacred worldview. That there's a God, and everything emanates from God. Well, with the entrance of Descartes in the 16th century and a variety of other philosophers, well, then they were saying, just wait just a second, let's hold this. Maybe there's another way to explain this reality. And the scientific method was born. And so what happened was, in an explanation of things, in an explanation of things, it was determined that really everything can be explained. We live in a mechanistic world. We don't know about God. We live in a mechanistic world where we understand a cause and effect. And it started out very primitively, but with each step of technology, it becomes more mysterious, doesn't it? Because you don't know how your phone works, do you? I was holding my nine-month-old grandson. I was babysitting. Come on, we're going to make it. I resorted to my phone to entertain him. Nine months old, he looked at my phone, his eyes lightened up, and he went "Er, er," on the screen until something happened. And then he went "Er, er, er," until something else happened. Nine months. He's brilliant. I don't understand. And so as, as, as the scientific worldview, the mechanistic worldview, explaining things as cause and effect, A plus B will render C, as it advanced, then it just keeps filling in spaces of our life and it keeps filling in the mystery so that we get on airplanes that we don't understand how they fly, but we get in them. It's a mystery. I don't know. I was in Columbus. Now I'm in Peoria. I don't know. And so the mystery is left to others. And the others are saying, we can explain everything. We can take your organs out of your body to repair your aorta and then put your organs properly back, stitch you up, pat you on the head, and say, have a great day. That's amazing, isn't it? But you see what's happened to our worldview. Listen carefully. The choices between a theistic worldview or a secular worldview. A theistic worldview says there is, a, there is this God we speak of and that he is not limited by the things of the scientific worldview. He's over them. In fact, he invented them. And so typically the laws of nature work this way, but since God in a theistic worldview is over them, he's not limited by them. And so let's pray for the sick person for whom the doctors have given up hope. Because the scientific worldview says no more hope. And God's over it. And we say, I'm going to pray for them. Because it's a supernatural worldview. Now listen to this part. A scientific worldview can live inside of a supernatural worldview because science is subject to God, because he made it up. But a theistic, a a sacred worldview cannot live inside of a scientific worldview. Because it says, no, we can explain everything. 
Give us enough time, and we'll explain that too. Our problem is with Jonah and the great fish is a question of worldview. What do we believe? What do we, what do we, what do we believe? What do we, where are we starting? Are we starting from God? And then the material world, the secular worldview fits within that? Or are we starting from there and, and trying to squeeze God in there? That's really frustrating, isn't it? Trying to make God a subset of the reality. And he refuses to play. He refuses to be good about it. And he keeps blowing out my categories. Yeah, Jonah was literally swallowed by a great fish, and he was literally in there for three days and three nights. I mean, I, how, can I scientifically prove that? Absolutely not. But I have no interest in trying. I don't need to, because God is bigger than science. If he's not bigger than science, what in the name of Sandy Patty are we doing here, huh? I mean, come on. If this isn't real, if there really isn't this other parallel reality, if there really isn't a heaven, Paul himself says, if, if you're just in this thing for this life, you're to be pitied among all men. Okay, three things quick about Jonah. Ready? Say yes. First, Jonah is a model of reluctance. Right? I mean, he's just the perfect example of what it means to reluctantly respond to God. And he was really just a model of disobedience in the beginning. The second thing is the book of Jonah shows us the power of the spoken vow. Listen carefully. So if you look at Jonah in the, in the belly of the fish when he's having his dark night of the soul and coming to his moment, one of the things that he says at the end of his, okay, I give up, is he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. What I have vowed. Apparently he had made some kind of vow. We're not privy to what that vow was because we were already kind of in motion when we opened the book of Jonah. But I think we can safely say that since he called this out, he had made some kind of a vow to God. And this is why God gets to pick on Jonah, you guys. I mean, otherwise you have this really mean God throwing people inside a fish, right? But what you have here is God cashing in, if you will, a vow that had been made to him. Inside he goes, I'll, I'll keep the vow. This was all about a vow he had made. I don't think if you haven't made a vow to be a prophet, I don't think you have to worry about being swallowed by a fish today, okay? He had made a vow. God said, all right, it's time to fulfill your vow. He ran from it. God said, no, I said it's time to fulfill your vow. Vows are important. Vows that we make are sacred. Vows. The word of our lips. The level of surrender, commitment that would qualify as a vow. When we make vows to God, here's what I picture. See, God really requires nothing of me. He saved me by His grace. He's making me a house in heaven. All that stuff in the Bible, I believe. And He really requires nothing of me. Just to be a son. Try not to screw up. Try not to screw anybody else up when you're doing this, okay? That's a big job. But that really, at the end of the day, he's not asking, telling me to go to Nineveh. But then we make vows to God, don't we? 
Sometimes you get in those bargaining situations and you made a vow. Your vow counted. Your vow is a spoken commitment to God that though God was not asking it from you, you gave to Him. And He can cash it in, if you will. He'd made a vow. God was redeeming the vow. And He'll do it. We need to be very careful about the vows that we take in our lives. Ecclesiastes says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better, catch this, not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Vows are real. I've made two vows to God in my life. Only two. When was our wedding vows? We were children. We were babies. (laughs) But we vowed. We vowed our love, our commitment to each other. Better for worse, richer for sickness and health. We made that vow. That vow was sealed as a covenant by God, in spite of who we were at the time. (laughs) That it's been shown to us again and again that our covenant as a covenant vow that we made. So far, so good. (laughs) Forty-four years later. She's still hanging in there. I don't know how. Grace of God. There's a vow. God holds me to that vow. In 44 years, we've never violated our vows. We've been faithful to one another. I don't say that to boast, because that's painful for some to hear, perhaps. But I'm just talking to you about the power of a vow. The only other vow I ever made to God was, God, I will serve you with my life. Put me where you want me. I will, I will serve you here, there. I will serve you where you put my feet. All my life. I have tried to escape that vow a couple times. Hey, turns out sheep bite. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like fulfill your vow. This is what's happening. And then this resentful ending on the end. Why was he so angry? He was angry because his pride was irreparably damaged. He was angry because he was holding on to something that he himself says in his prayer inside caused him to forfeit the grace of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He had an idol in his hand. And his idol was his own image. The idol was his own pride. And so this caused him to forfeit the grace of God. What a moment Jonah could have had. What a moment. The blessing of obedience. Lord, I was obedient. Kind of knew you would do this. Glad for it. Your sovereign God. Holy God. But he didn't. He held on to an idol. The idol of his own pride. God said, do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? And he says, yes, I have a right. He's holding on to this thing. The Bible says here that when we cling to worthless idols, whatever they are, that we forfeit the grace that could be ours. We forfeit grace. And God is a God of grace. Our relationship is one of grace. But when we cling to that idol, whatever it is, 
When we cling to that thing we hold more dear than God, we forfeit His grace. It could be the worldview. It could be the scientific worldview. I'm clinging to that. We forfeit His grace. We can't see. Our eyes are blind. We hang on to different... You know, Jesus said the most audacious thing. He said, unless you love me more than your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your children, your spouse, you're not one of mine. And you're like, does God not want me to love my family? That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, open your hand to me, even with your family. Open your hand to me. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There's grace. And we're clinging to worthless idols. Could be your stuff. You're an American. You have stuff. Is your hand open or closed? Is there anything in your pile of stuff that if a brother or sister needed it to fulfill the will of God, you wouldn't give to them? I went through that list in my mind this week. And I got through, no, no, that'd be fine. Take the farm. No, I mean, I, I've been blessed. Boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places, as David said for me. We started out real poor, but we ain't high cotton now, okay? <laughs> I mean, relatively speaking. I don't know if it'd be high for you or not, but we're blessed. But I got all the way down to, yeah, I'd even give up my Taylor T5 guitar if somebody needed that to fulfill the will of God. And I got all the way down to my last remaining possession, which is this wedding ring. Would I give that up? If a believer said, I need that ring to fulfill the will of God for my life. There you go. That doesn't change a thing. Karen's still stuck with me. Doesn't change a thing. You got to let go of that idol you're going to experience the grace. Probably many of you have heard the story of how in some parts of the world they capture wild monkeys. They hollow out a big coconut or a gourd and they make a hole in it just big enough for the monkey's hand. And then inside they put some shiny object or some piece of food. And the wild monkey comes along and sees this thing and looks in and sticks his hand in and grabs hold of the object. And then when the clubber comes, they won't run away. They will not let go of the object, and they can't run with the weight. And it proves to be their demise, because those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You can't have idolatry and freedom in your life at the same time. I'm going to invite you into something this morning. It's just a slightly farther outside the box. I think one of the arts that has truly been lost in our society is the art of bowing. Just bowing before God. Just opening our hands and bowing before God. There's a lot of pride in our society, of course. We don't have a lot of models for it, so it doesn't sort of come naturally. But in the scriptures and in church experience, history... When believers bow before God and surrender to Him and open their hands and say, take away my idols, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen individually and corporately. 
And so I'm just going to invite anybody here today who wants to make that kind of expression, take that kind of a risk, and say, I'm stirred by what the Lord is saying to me here, to you. You're stirred. And you want to make that kind of expression of bowing before God. If you're stirred that way, I want to invite you to stand up right now and come and bow. Just bow before the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I'm not drawing a line in the sand saying those who are spiritual will come and those who aren't won't. It's not that at all. I said if you are stirred by this, those are reasons maybe known only to you. But if you are stirred by this and just want to come and bow before the Lord, lay your hands open before Him. Just lay them open before Him. 